Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. What if we could eat to beat depression and anxiety? What if we could nourish our way to better mental health in just six weeks? With depression and anxiety disorders on the rise, affecting more than 58 million people, and get this, just the United States alone, I'm sure that number is uh, even larger if you include Australia, New Zealand, all the other countries around the world too. Many People rely on therapy and medication to alleviate symptoms, but often this isn't enough. The latest scientific advances in neuroscience and nutrition, along with our understanding of our mind-gut connection, has proven that how and what we eat greatly affects how we feel physically, cognitively, and emotionally. My guest today is the groundbreaking doctor, Dr. Drew Ramsey, who helps us today forge a new path forward to greater mental health through food. His brilliant book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, breaks down the science of nutritional psychiatry and explains what foods positively affect brain health and improve mental awareness too. Dr. Drew Ramsey is a psychiatrist, author, and farmer. His work focuses on clinical excellence, nutritional interventions, and creative media. He's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and in active uh, telemedicine, sorry, clinical practice based in New York City. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many, many others. And this conversation really stems around how food is really going to nourish our, our way to a much better mental health uh, life, essentially. And I think mental health is such an important aspect of our overall health, many of which 
take it for granted and, and overlook it most most of the time. I'm not saying that everyone does it, but I know that I have sometimes with the busyness of life. It kind of feels like mental health can be put to the wayside at times. And I think that with everything that has gone on in the last couple of years, with so many mental health conditions on the rise, I think this is a conversation for so many of us that we all really, really need. And I hope that it helps someone out there that it may be struggling with depression and anxiety. I myself have gone through both, and it is difficult at times. So, my friends, go and get a copy of uh, Dr. Drew's book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. The link for that will be in the show notes below. Also, don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. link for that will be in the show notes below too. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to eat to beat depression and anxiety as we journey into the story box today and listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Drew Ramsey. Thanks so much, Jay. It's great to be here and everybody listening. Nice to be with you for a little bit. Talk about mental health and nutrition and whatever else Jay wants to talk about. I think this is going to be a very uh, fun conversation. Hopefully, uh, I can... Um, kind of quell all the questions that I have uh, in today's conversation because there are a lot of them. Um, but my very first question for you, Dr. Drew, this is a question that I love starting off with all my guests. It is, what does success look like for you? Oh, like a nice dinner time with my wife and kids. I like that. That's a good one for me right now. Uh, you know, success has meant different things for me at different points in my life. Uh, earlier in my life, success felt like concrete achievements. <clears throat> uh, felt like doing well in school, performing well as an athlete, being a caring member of society. Um and then as I've gotten older, you know, success looks, you know, changes at different stages of our life. You know, success for me right now, I don't know, I'm, I recently moved is, is about managing my mental health during a transition and continuing to be a good doctor to my patients, no matter what's happening, a, a good father, to my kids, no matter what's happening, good husband. So like for me that, I mean, maybe it's not so, but that, that's success. Like if I can, if I can really, you know, uh, do all of those roles, be a good doctor, good dad, good husband. Yeah. Right now that's like, that's, uh, and then have a good dinner together. That's a great day. <laughs> that's really great. Uh, and, and that happens. I don't want to, I don't want people to think that like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's like some mountain death. that, that happens a, a fair amount, but that that's, you know, at least that's how I try and define it in my mind when I'm thinking about, you know, all, all of the various other metrics that there are out there of, of our success these days, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm active on social. I know how many likes I get and how many views and I, you know, see how many people open emails we send. So, you know, there's all kinds of other things that can creep in there, but I think it's very important to kind of keep for all of us sort of eyes on the prize of what, what is actual success. The very grounding and I guess a humble way of looking at it, like connection with your, your wife, your kids, and actually having a good dinner time. I mean, not many people would actually say that is success for them because they would equate it to the busyness of life, trying to achieve that very next thing, which kind of contributes to the crazy mental health crisis that we have in our society with all this noise going on. Uh, and it's just affecting how people see the world, how they react to the world and, and so much more. Um, is that the same? If you notice that, as well in, in your 
experience and, and looking at the world too? Yeah. I mean, right now it's a very tenuous time for people's mental health. You know, there was uh, before the pandemic, before coronavirus and COVID and all of this and uh, and all of what it brought, right? Not just uh, death, but also polarization, fear, and a lot of discord, right? And, and disagreement about things like science and things like public health measures. So, uh, you know, on top of the mental health crisis that that you know, both of our countries were having, right? Uh, big suicide epidemic, big drug crisis, big depression crisis, millions and millions of people. Uh, then we have the pandemic. Uh, so, the, and the you know, the upside being that everyone starts talking about mental health because everyone gets anxious initially, everyone has insomnia, um, everyone begins to struggle with depression, a big part of the population begins to really struggle with grief and extended grief and unresolved grief, because unlike usually when you lose someone, someone gets sick, right? you have a funeral, you mourn, well now everyone's mourning separately and, and it's and, you know, and then on top of that, now when we're recording, we're in the midst of a, you know, a war and many people feel potentially on the brink of uh, a war that goes uh, into something that looks like a, uh, a World War III. In some ways, people would argue we're in that, you know, by proxy. I mean, I don't know what it means for lots of countries to deliver uh, lots of weapons to one country that's fighting. I mean, it just it, it's it's very tenuous right now. And so I think your question of, you know, what is mental health like? That's people have a, are in a mental health state they've never been in before for most folks, right? A weird place of departmentalization, right? To go have a good time and have those things, have a nice dinner time. I have to ignore that we're in a historic moment and that horrible things are happening that I just saw 20 minutes ago on, on my phone, right? That's hard for all of us. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I think it is a challenging time for mental health um, in all kinds of ways. And, and, you know, one of the reasons that writing about food and nutrition uh, is, uh, um, it, you know, for a lot of people, isn't part of that equation, hasn't been how we think about mental health conditions, and certainly not the only thing we need to do for mental health, but in terms of us all getting more proactive, right, R regardless of the tenuous period in history that we're in, taxing our mental health, even before that, we all really need a better sense and, and as communities need a better sense of how do we support and promote mental health? Because it has not been going well. Yeah, it's like no, in my computer. No. So, so this interview continues to go well. Sorry, Jay. You're all right, my friend. No. All right, there we go. He's got power going. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if you finished what you were what you were saying. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that was you know I think your question was around kind of a mental health now, and, and my sense is that it, you know the good news is we're talking about it um, by having our mental health stressed. We learn a lot about it. You know, not, not that we always triumph at every moment, but um, you know when you. Uh, have to protect your sleep, when you have to actively work to decrease your anxiety, when you, boy, just find yourself crying because it's like really scary right now. You know, those are all moments when we learn about our mental health. So, you know, I don't want to be an optimist that it's all an opportunity, but I do think it's important for us to in some ways think about ourselves as like, like mentally stronger than we've ever been because we've been dealing with more than we've ever dealt with. Before we come back to mental health, I totally agree that 
in today's day and age, the mental health crisis has increased at enormous and, and somewhat alarming rates, but in the same sense that we are talking about it, but is just talking about it, is that enough? What are some oh, other no, 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 no. About this, things can we do? It's like mental health awareness, which I love. Like mental health awareness is great. It's that we're having these conversations where two men talking about mental health and feelings. We're using the words depression. Like this is all awesome. But as one of my patients said to me, and it stuck with me, somebody who lost a family member to mental health condition said, you know, awareness doesn't do anything. Like action does things. And so every time there's mental, mental health awareness miles coming up, and, and I love Mental Health Awareness Month. Let's talk about all the different stripes and flavors and aspects of our mental health. But we need to have mental health action. Like you, you being aware you're depressed or anxious, you're listening out there and you're aware, like that is great. It, self-awareness is one of the most important tools. But until we take action, until we say, you know, not only do I understand I am not doing well, but I've taken an action. Maybe that action is I'm just going to tell one person. I've been struggling to send an email for six months to a, a colleague. I sent it yesterday. I hemmed, I hawed, I hemmed, I hawed, and, you know, and, and then I was about to send it without this important part. And then I just said, you know, you've been hemming and hawing about this and you're going to send it and you're going to worry about it. So just do it. Just take action. Let's see what the next step is. Let's see what of your anxieties and fears are true. As most people know, not, not all of them, <laughs> not most of them for most of us. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I'm a big believer. Awareness, obviously critical mental health action. I'd ask you, everybody listening, right? Just think about what'd you do today? What'd you do today for your mental health? Yeah. I'm thinking like, what did I do today? For you? you know what I did? The first thing is I really tried to enjoy my cup of coffee. Yeah. Give thanks for how much I enjoyed my coffee and really sit with it. Not for long. I interviewed a colleague, Robin Burson, who talked about meditating every day. So I took a few deep breaths during that interview. I changed my schedule. So I went to breakfast and hung out with my kids, which I really like. And I realized I kind of like just sort of scheduled out of my schedule. But anyway, everybody listening, I hope there's something, if there wasn't anything, it's, you know, doing things for our mental health doesn't have to be like complicated. It doesn't have to be like a deep therapy session. It, 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 it's little things like that, that I think help us. Where did your interest really begin in psychiatry first and foremost? And then secondly, learning more about mental health issues or our mental health as a whole? Psychiatry interested me for a couple of reasons. Um, one, one of my, my uh, favorite relatives, my aunt was a psychotherapist. And so I was just really curious about the human mind. I was, as a family member, I've been like curious about my emotional internal state and how I thought about stuff. And I just liked the way that she uh, thought about things. Um, it, 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 it helped introduce me to this notion. And my uncle was a psychiatrist. And so I had a little influence in the family, but I liked how they thought. And I, I liked this notion. I was like biology. And I liked this notion uh, of being able to understand some of the mechanisms of the brain, being able to understand some of these molecules, but it's still also being a place that was really going to expand. And then just personally, I don't know, I've always been a pretty emotional person. You know, I think probably when I was younger, struggled with my mental health in ways that we maybe think of differently now. Uh, I, um, I think it really appealed to me as I got into medical school. Uh, the idea that you could be a clinician, you could be a healer, you could be, you could kind of work that craft and the, the healing comes through the relationship in, in a psychotherapy or uh, through helping someone uh, with a set of medications, maybe uh, around very stigmatized conditions. I think that, that that all really interested in me. 
interested me. And then I think seeing patients, you know, I was in medical school, just there, there were a lot of, I remember working at the VA hospital. First time I saw somebody really manic and then I came back the next day and they weren't. And I just, you know, to see somebody's human brain in those two different states. Um, early in my career, I worked with a lot of patients who had psychotic disorders before kind of getting interested in uh, more mood disorders and, and, you know, some of the aspects of those that, you know, I've caught a lot of the nutritional psychiatry, lifestyle psychiatry, you know, sort of what, what I try and, and sum up in here is, is really data that's come out in the last five years and maybe seven years in terms of new clinical trials showing how food can be used to impact. But, you know, we, we know brain health. A lot of people think about, you know, they eat well, it's going to protect their heart health maybe, and maybe help them with dementia risk. But really, when you think about your functioning, the most important thing for you to do is protect and, and improve your mental health. Uh, that's the number one cause of disability in the world, meaning we're just not being our best selves. And so food, we increasingly understand has a lot to do with that, not surprisingly, in terms of regulating things like inflammation. And, and then just a set of cool data coming out, Jay, that like, I, I don't know, there's never ever been studies before where you took a population with depression that was getting some treatment and gave them a Mediterranean diet. You know, I'm like, watch what happened. And you know, what happens is people who start eating the Mediterranean diet, they get better. They get better than people who don't. And in terms of their mental health, 30%, 33% reached full remission in this, uh, the smiles trial. So, it, you know, we're used to think about some cool new stuff like the microbiome and how we understand like brain growth and neuroplasticity. You know, I think what's happened is wellness has gone from a lot of juju and there's still a lot of that in the wellness world to some of those tenants that we hear like, you know, food is medicine, really having a tremendous amount of data and research behind them now. So, um, yeah, so in terms of my interest in, in kind of mental health and psychiatry, you know, that, that's certainly one aspect. Some of the, I remember being really curious about dreams. Like, what are dreams, Jay? Like, where do they come from? Yeah. Do they have meaning? Is it like some neurological, like some neuron fart that just happens? And it's like just stuff from like all that TV show. And Or does it have like deep meaning about the unconscious? Or... Or is it, or is it the grand unconscious and we're touching it somehow? Uh, I got really curious about, I remember asking in a psycho, uh, in a psychiatry class as a third year medical student, a psychopharmacologist about that. He told me it was brain fart for sure. He's like, there's nothing, those mean nothing. <laughs> and then it's weird to then be a psychiatrist and you see people dream or you have people who dream about you or you see people dreaming more when they start to recount their dreams or you see things where you, it's so apparent to you as their clinician, as their doctor and their therapist, so clear the deep meaning of a dream sometimes where it's impossible not to believe in the unconscious. And so, I don't know, all that stuff. And then I got into psychotherapy. I was like a young guy, all angstrid about what to do with my life, as opposed to now as a middle-aged guy, angstrid about what to do with my life. But I, I, uh, I got into therapy and I just got, and I found it very helpful. Uh, uh, but I also found it just, you know, an interesting, interesting process so that's a long-winded answer. Why psychiatry? No, kind of like there's a lot of avenues I could have, I could jump into with that answer. Which I love long answers, by the way, so never be afraid of them. Uh, the dreaming aspect, I'm curious about that too. It's kind of like some of the dreams you have of other people, you kind of don't want to admit that you had a dream about that person and what the dream was about. And the other interesting thing, that I've always wondered is why do we forget most of the dreams that we do have in the first place? Like you've ever, it feels like incredibly real, like it's happening in real life. And then you wake up and then you've forgotten everything that just happened not that long ago. And it's like, it's just like an instantaneous switch. And then other dreams you remember 
everything that went on. It was so detail orientated and you just, you have everything in the forefront of your brain. And that's always, that's always fascinated me. And yeah, I don't know if that's, that section of dreaming has fascinated you at all. <laughs> just it fascinates me, Jay. I mean, it, it's not, you know, it, it's an area I spend a lot of time in where I've I really, I get to talk to people about the dreams and sort of part of my introduction when people enter into a therapy with me is, you know, tell them there's a few things I'm always really curious about that if they have dreams, you know, and they, and they can, you know, bring as much as they can in uh, to talk about. I always appreciate that. Um, I find dream work really interesting with the, you know, idea, not all dreams have this, but the idea, you know, is there a message? Is there something that we can learn from the dream? Is there something the dream has to tell us why we remember dreams? You know, the, the, the sleep physiologists would talk about that it has to do with kind of how far you're coming out of deep sleep into that kind of close to conscious awakening, REM sleep, dream sleep. Um, a lot of things affect dreaming, uh, you know, different medications, different substances, alcohol. So, uh, you know, a lot of those factors, a lot of people have a couple of drinks and, and, and have fitful sleep. So they'll remember all of their dreams. Your, your brain is always dreaming when you're sleeping at different stages. And, and it's just that we, in that conscious, in that little moment where we kind of come up and then go back down in a deep sleep in our sleep cycle is usually when we're remembering it. <clears throat> That's why sometimes you're woken up in the middle of the night, you'll sort of be in the middle of a dream and remember it. Uh, part of the reason people don't remember dreams, I think, Jay, is that we don't have a place for them in our lives. So for anybody listening, if you want to kind of get more involved with your dreams, I'd recommend starting with the dream journal, right? And just making the first thing you do as you wake up, right? Just try and sit with wherever you were. Don't jolt up. Don't grab the phone. Don't, you know, and, and especially if you if you work at this, I, I what I find is fascinating dreaming, Jay, is the fact that my brain, without looking at a clock, wakes up before my alarm. I don't understand how that happens. I could go to bed at all kinds of different times, right? But if my alarm is set for six, I'll wake up at 558. Mm. And I don't have like, it's not like I'm opening one eye in the middle of the night and peeking. It just, so, you know, the brain's amazing in that way. There's all kinds of meaning. Um, but as I was saying, if people kind of keep a little journal and, and begin to just write them down, write down as many details as you can and just sit with it. And a few tips about dreaming is I was asked people, you know, Listen to Freud, look for hopes and fears in the dreams. And then think about yourself as all of the different aspects of yourself as all of the different people in the dream. People will be like, oh, that was because I watched that TV show. Like, okay, but that's just your mind using that. Mm. That image gets used to represent something about you. It's at least a theory about dreams is the unconscious represents things to us hidden because we can't tolerate it in our conscious mind. Um, and, and so the idea with the dream is it kind of helps us maybe mobilize some of those things we're not fully aware of about ourselves and make us more aware. Have you looked into sleep therapy helping in terms of mental health and curing depression and anxiety? Well, you know, it's funny. Sleep is one of those things we don't have a lot of research on because we don't like think we need it. Uh, I.e., <laughs> when people get depressed, they either sleep more, they sleep less. You know, serotonin and other molecules involved in mood are highly involved in sleep. You know, melatonin is actually made from serotonin. A lot of people don't know that, but so uh, you know, sleep therapy or so sleep hygiene is one of the cornerstones of mental health treatment. So you know, if you come into a treatment with me, along with talking about some brain food. You know, I'm going to go through a little like, what's your sleep hygiene routine? And if you say what, I'm going to say, oh, awesome. It's a great kind of area for you to think about because every little thing is going to make a big difference for you because you don't have a routine. 
right? You just set an intention. You're going to go to the fed before 11 PM. Like your sleep hygiene just went up. If you don't have a routine or you're going to wash your face every night, brush your teeth or whatever it is that kind of begins to signal, um, uh, you're going to lower the lights in your house. It's something a lot of people don't do. You know, it's like every, all the lights are up. Uh, so, um, so sleep is key, uh, critical, and, and one of those things that also people, you know, have some control over. Yeah. And most people, this sounds bad, Jay, but most people aren't honest with themselves about sleep. Yeah. I was one of those people is how I know this. I'd say, oh, I sleep like seven, eight hours. Like I'm pretty good. I go to bed like 11 most nights. If you go to bed anytime after 9, 9.30 and you're an adult, you're not getting anywhere close to eight hours of sleep. I started tracking my sleep a year ago and at pretty early bedtime to get eight solid hours of sleep is incredibly hard in the modern world. I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, I am so, I'm one of those people that goes to bed really, really early, but I wake up super early and yeah, I, yeah. I guard my sleep at nighttime with everything I possibly can. Like I give up things because a lot of my friends, they tend to go out and do things at night. And I'm like, why nighttime? Like I get you work and all that sort of stuff, but why nighttime? Like, I mean, it, it's just. I, wanna, I, I agree with you. Like I was thinking today, this morning, I was thinking, you know, so many people, because I have that sort of schedule too, you know, like go out at night. I mean, if I, at night, I had that kind of, when I was younger in New York, you know, that kind of life state of finish work, go have some drinks and meet up. But I've realized like now at this stage in life, that time, you know, free time is like, it's with me, myself and I at like 5 a.m. <laughs> and that's really the, you know, that that's that's sort of um, a different, you know, maybe a different measure of uh, success, as you were saying earlier, of, of, you know, enjoying and using that time well. Um, but yeah, protecting sleep is hard. I think it's hard, especially for younger folks who have a social life. I think it's... Uh, um, uh, so much fun and stimulating stuff is happening. It's hard for us all to put our phones down and kind of, you know, value and treasure sleep. You should though, seven grams of waste gets excreted out of your brain, cleaned out of your brain every night. So like that takes eight hours of sleep. If you, so maybe you only cleaned out like six grams last night, the other grams like floating around and that's why you feel like, Bleh. I don't know if that's exactly how it works, but that's how I think about it. It helps motivate me where I'm like, Oh, I should watch one more episode. It's like, I see that crap up there, like eating my brain. I'm like, you know, I should go to bed, let my brain clean itself. So it makes sense to me. And also I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this as well. Like if I don't get a good night's sleep, it affects my gut. And then it also affects what I want to eat the next day. Like if I had a bad night's sleep, all I tend to crave is a lot of sugar, a lot of mm -hmm. carbohydrates. And if I have a good night's sleep, I tend to lean more towards the more satiating, more filling foods, the ones that are actually better for me. Like I don't really have this desire to eat a lot of junk food. I mean, I tend to eat healthy most days. Um, you know, I'm human, so I do have my days I don't. I'll admit that. <laughs> but for the most part, I'm heavily reliant on my sleep in order to to how I feel in terms of what I eat. Um, does that make sense? It makes sense. I have this like diagram where I, by my desk, there's this really nice article on like inflammation and depression. There's a diagram I'm looking at because I think it makes sense. And I also think there's a very biological explanation 
which is, and maybe this is going a little too detailed and too far, but you know, as you're not sleeping well, yeah, you're not really kind of like, especially if you're, if you're sleeping, if you're, you know, uh, it's a bad night's sleep, you really don't kind of get to clean things up as well. Um, uh, When our body is craving carbohydrates, a lot of people think that's because we're craving tryptophan in the brain. And you kind of wonder why would we do that? Well, there's this really interesting data that, you know, as we have more inflammation peripherally in our body that floats around and eventually triggers the immune cells in the brain, the immune cells in the brain spill out all their inflammatory factors and they activate this enzyme, indiolamine 2,3-deoxygenase, and it pulls tryptophan. So instead of making serotonin, we pull tryptophan from serotonin or from tryptophan in that pool. Um, and we make these kind of very defensive molecules to protect the brain that are very also inflammatory. Because again, when we want to protect the brain, we're going into a state of inflammation. And, and, and so part of how one might understand you craving the carbs is when we eat carbs, we transport more tryptophan into the brain. And so, you know, that you're kind of like responding, you know, it might not work that quickly, but it, it's, uh, and that's part of how I understand that. Um, now the other thing is that if you have a bad night's sleep, you know, another reason you might be craving sugar is you want to get more tryptophan into the brain. And in part, because your body's like, man, that sucked. We need to sleep better. Let's make a boatload of melatonin. I'm not sure that's exactly how it works, but I think it's really important to pay attention to these things because when you're craving carbs, you know, we can just say like, oh, that's awful. They're evil. But you know, there's also why your brain's always run on carbs, right? Uh, all vegetables are made of carbohydrates. That's the primary nutrient in them. So when we say plant-based diet, we're saying carb-based diet, basically. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, there's understanding kind of and getting a really good sense of signals from your body and developing a natural palate, i.e. palate that just really enjoys natural flavors. You know, two, two, two of the big parts of nutritional psychiatry and kind of people reestablishing a good relationship with food that, you know, get overlooked sometimes. Is depression, is that just a chemical imbalance in the brain and the body or what actually is depression for those people that are wondering helping people define the term properly yeah so you know as a physician and somebody really likes science i think about all mood states and all conscious states as resting in biology and and biochemistry and and so uh I, i do think about depression and mood states as having an underlying root in the brain um, I think there's a lot of things that go on in the brain, ranging from spirituality to consciousness that, you know, don't exactly feel biological to people, but I think are highly biological and really interesting and, and a part of this. I'll, I'll just say that I don't think it's just like serotonin and dopamine. I also think that that notion of a chemical imbalance, you know, now there's a way that like psychiatry, I wouldn't say is in trouble. There's a lot of like uh, rebuttal of that. And I think that the, the reason that idea came into vogue or that phrase got used, you know, in part it was big pharma, but, but in part it was really trying to destigmatize these illnesses, right? That you're not a weak person because you're sad and anxious, that you're not a bad, you know, uh, moral character because you drink too much, that there is biology and neurochemistry to these disorders and um, everyone with the human genome carries genes that potentially could get expressed to lead to a lot of these disorders. You know, think about depression, 
uh, you know, lifetime risk of depression for most people is re reasonably high. You know, I think one in four women over the age of 60 in America are taking an antidepressant. And a lot of times people quote the statistic like that's bad. And I just think like, are we ever going to stop gaslighting women? Maybe 25% of women are on antidepressants because the world is really, really awful to women. And they're treating the subsequent mood disorders and anxiety disorders. Uh, you know, I just think that those are voluntary women who are taking a medicine and we should be a little more curious why as opposed to being like, oh, so overprescribed. Uh, I don't want to sound like I'm all pro-medicine. I just think there's a lot of ways that, um, so yes, the short, there are a lot of ways that medications get misunderstood and stigmatized. So people who need them don't get them. And oftentimes when people get them, they don't get them in a way that is maximally effective. Um, so I think there's just a lot of frustration and misinformation out there. So yeah. Are you all for medications, antidepressants? Yeah, I'm all for antidepressants. I think anybody who isn't is, uh, um, I think anybody who isn't for responsible psychopharmacology has not spent a lot of time getting paid, treating patients. I don't think meds are essential for most patients, yeah. uh, for a lot of patients. I think people need different medicines at different times in their lives sometimes. But I think that uh, for certain people, you know, they're, they're going to die by suicide if there weren't antidepressants. And you, you only see, you see you see that happen a couple of times, or, or you know think about if people uh, want to question psychopharmacology, explain ketamine. Mm. I give you an IV drip, in thirty minutes you no longer suicidally depressed and your brain is growing. I mean, Jesus, that's like, that's, you know, that's like, I mean, I don't know what that is. I guess that's a, a breakthrough, a miracle, something to be understood. Uh, something that, um, you know, uh, I'm in awe of in terms of understanding how can we do a better job getting more people better, right? You know, people will know, I think, uh, responsibly, hey, if all these meds would work so well, why do we have a mental health crisis? Is it like a crappy delivery system? Is it that they, you know, work for some people better than others and we don't stratify that population so well? I mean, there's a lot of great questions and a lot of great critiques of how meds, meds and medications fit into the healthcare system right now. I don't want to, you know, again, just come across as, uh, you know, totally pro, but I'm in the position, I meet a lot of people in crisis and feel like, you know, I mean, not to sound arrogant, but feel like I've helped save a lot of lives with medications over the years. And also lots of psychotherapy. You know, I think one of the differences, uh, I, I don't know, a lot of people are surprised. I'm a psychiatrist, but I do lots of, I mean, lots of psychotherapy. You know, like I said, listening to his patients, I don't know, 30 plus hours a week, most weeks. So, it, it, you know, most people think about us as folks who just prescribe. And I, I prescribe in that context to try and, you know, have humility. And these aren't perfect medicines. They're not silver bullets. Uh, sometimes it's even hard to tell that they work or they don't work. They certainly have some side effects, but you know, there's some medicines like lithium who are using lithium. It's a salt. It's stardust. It's one of the, it's one of the, the primordial elements of the known universe. And, you know, and it's, it's one of the only, it's the only one of two FDA approved medications for suicide prevention. I mean, it's, you know, it's so anyway, those, those are, I guess, some of my broad thoughts on meds. Does that mean there are, I guess, for different people is sort of, I guess, the broad term, le different levels of depression and how it affects different people? 
You know, Jay, there, I think about it as more different types of depression, because I think what happens sometimes is people think like, oh, if you're on 200 milligrams, you must be really sick. Yeah. Whereas if someone else is on 10 milligrams, they're like, no, they're not so sick, right? Yeah. And I think what that doesn't, the same thing happens with food. Right? Like one of the real uh, powerful studies in here, is it in here? Is it out? Hold on. Uh, it's in here, the Healthy Med Trial. Healthy yep. Med Trial took people who are extremely severely depressed and gave them a Mediterranean diet. Now they were also getting medicine and they're in a programmer, but they, with the brain food, the Mediterranean diet, went from severely depressed to mildly depressed. And if you've ever been severely depressed, going to mildly depressed is great. <laughs> you're sleeping through the night. You don't want to, you know, not having suicidal thoughts. You're not crying as much. So, um, so the same thing with meds, right? Some people need like 25 milligrams of Zoloft, really low dose. And they do amazing. Other people, they need a higher dose. And I don't like thinking of those patients who need more as quote unquote, like sicker, having like a worse depression. I'm also, a lot of people with depression have about a third have really high levels of inflammation. So, you know, there's this way that depression, you know, if you come to me and you have a depression due to inflammation, one, antidepressants are anti-inflammatories, many of them. But two, you know, one of the reasons the medicines often don't work is that people are living a lifestyle that's very pro-depressive. So if you're drinking any alcohol and you're on an antidepressant, the antidepressant's not going to work yeah. as well, P period. I mean, there's a lot of data that just might not work. If you're on an antidepressant and you're not sleeping, you know, now, now, sometimes they interfere with that. I appreciate that. But, uh, you know, if you're eating lots and lots of sugar and junk food, which, you know, is really tempting when you're anxious and depressed, uh, all these things can interfere with... Um, medications efficacy so that's where in some ways i think they get a bad rap my dad says sometimes it's kind of like a joke he'll he'll get a tub of ice cream and he'll have or a bunch of chocolate and he'll smash quite a bit of it now he's quite a fit and healthy dude and then we'll say why did you have so much and he go i'm depressed i'll just <laughs> as sort of like a, a joke but i guess my question to you is how does food contribute to our mental health as a whole and how can we beat depression and anxiety these are two big questions i know with the kind of foods that we do eat the way that you beat depression with food or help beat depression with food contribute is you prime your brain for growth and you eliminate sources of inflammation many of which can come from diet i don't just mean gluten i just mean you know eating in a way that doesn't really use the most recent science about the gut, about the microbiome and, you know, and nothing, I think too surprising for anyone in this space, right? If you eat more fermented foods and plants, the data suggests you're going to have a healthier microbiome, meaning the type of bacteria that live in your gut. Um, the book, uh, Eat to Be Depression and Anxiety has a six week plan that kind of, uh, as a nutritional psychiatrist, I think in food categories. So if I take a new nutritional history of Jay, and I don't see any leafy greens. He's not, you know, making kale chips. He doesn't have a sunflower sprout salad every now and then. You know, he's not dropping uh, kale and and uh, you know uh, basil in his pesto. I'm just going to kind of note that and think, well, this is a great opportunity for Jay. You know, leafy greens are filled with fiber. They're filled with what's called nutrient density, more nutrients per calories than other foods. Um, and I'm going to look for other things like seafood. So I'm going to look at these kind of food categories, trying to get a set of nutrients. Your question is like, how does depression relate to food? So if there's certain nutrients you don't eat enough of, you will get depressed. So like if anyone listening lives in the UK, 
Do you know any men who are vegan? Uh, according to the Epic Oxford study, about 52% of male vegans have B12 deficiency. And B12 deficiency just causes depression, death of brain cells, and dementia eventually. Easy, easy to fix. Just make sure all of our vegans take a little B12 supplement. You know, got nothing against vegans, but just as a notion that changing our food, change, you know, especially eliminating food categories that, you know, are the only food categories that have B12, it can be very dangerous if you don't supplement. So other ways that food uh, relate to mental health, if we think about part of what I try and do with people is helping their brain get into more of a growth mode. Call this neuroplasticity, the idea that the brain can grow and repair itself. Lots of things. There are these uh, neural factors. I've got all these illustrations in the book, Jay. I want to show one of them. Off. Here's one for the microbiome. Because I feel like these phrases, you know, like, I don't know, I, we all use them and just, you know, I like to have something I can flip back and make sure I'm, I don't know, thinking about the concept. And so neuroplasticity, again, brain growth and repair, BDNF is, I was looking, there's a BDNF diagram in here. It's a big molecule that, you know, it's not that big molecule, but it's a molecule that influences uh, brain growth and repair. It's called a neurotrophin. And so food, exercise, psychotherapy, antidepressant medications, they all promote BDNF expression. Um, and some of those nutrients promote BDNF expression, we just don't get a lot of. You know, 48% of Americans don't get enough zinc. Zinc is one of those things that triggers BDNF. Most Americans, and I think a lot of us strongly don't get any, uh, very little seafood, very little, you know, more than we used to. But in America, the average American gets 14 pounds of seafood a year, right? So that that's just not a lot. So um, if, if we think about um, uh, other ways that food and, and the depression or food and, and anxiety relate, you know, say the notion of the microbiome and just, again, what gets in the way of neuroplasticity. One thing is inflammation, What's the master regulator of inflammation? It's our immune system, which is really centered in the gut. And, and so working on eating more fiber, so 68, I think it was only, only 5% of Americans meet the recommended daily allowance for fiber. And you could argue fiber is one of the most important nutrients for mental health. Like we all say like, oh, omega-3 fats, B12, like protein. It's like, yeah, that's all really important. But fiber, you know, it, is critical because fiber and eating more plants, more fermented food, you know, at least in the research now leads to a microbiome that's more diverse, uh, that's less inflammatory. It's actually some data showing out of Stanford, if you eat a lot of fermented foods, like five or six servings a day, you actually improve immune function in a reasonably short amount of time. Your own like immune system works better. So, uh, you know, those are some of the ways that it would kind of tie in nutrition, a little bit about like neuroplasticity and the immune system and the gut uh, with our brain health and our mental health. Then there's also just a lot of data today about what's called dietary pattern. Yeah. So if you look at a population that eats a more traditional diet, it could be a Mediterranean style diet, Norwegian diet, Japanese diet. Sometimes the researchers just call it a traditional diet and they kind of, you know, uh, define that as the dietary pattern and the research according to you know, lots of plants and not a lot of processed foods. These Mediterranean style traditional 
diet uh, are protective, it looks like, for depression. So there's a study of 10,000 university students in Spain, and those who were like in the top half in terms of how well they ate the Mediterranean diet of their class, they had between a 30 to 50% decreased risk of uh, depression over the next four and a half years. So, you know, that's just one study, but it's a very, you know, interesting prospective epidemiological study. Uh, and so I think that, you know, having a dietary pattern based on real foods, not processed foods, you know, not maybe, uh, you know, headline news to anyone that that's good for your health, but a lot of people haven't really connected that to their mental health, that if you're feeling anxious and depressed, yeah, maybe there's lots of reasons for that. Maybe you need to process and talk about trauma that you've had. Maybe you have a biological depression. Maybe you have a nutritional deficiency, right? But, but the, the, uh, one thing that you can begin to do for sure to kind of eliminate uh, it, uh, some of that is, is to you know, eat a very um, simple diet made of whole food, diverse set of whole foods. And in these food categories, we talk about nutritional psychiatry and you need to be depression and anxiety. as so seafood, greens, nuts and beans, nuts, beans, and seeds, I would say. Um, rainbow vegetables, right? Look at your plate. You see lots of greens and lots of colors. Um, and then fermented foods, which uh, the big ones I recommend tend to be kefir and kombucha are the two that I find people kind of tolerate the best. I'm a big fan of seafood. And here in Sydney, Australia, we have a lot of it, which I'm grateful for. I mean, just down the road from my house, we've got a, uh, they're called Costis, which means lots of seafood. <laughs> so we, we get a lot of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think climate and culture as well, that I think that also plays an impact in terms of what people eat when they eat. Do you, are you a fan of intermittent fasting at all? You know, I, I mean, I, I'm a, yes. I mean, I'm a fan of most of these in the sense of, I find it interesting. I find it, you know, I find both fasting and fasting states and ketogenic diets interesting. It's interesting to run your brain cells on a different set of fuels. Yep. I think the psychological responses to hunger and fasting that we all have, I personally find that really interesting. Not that I ever want to starve myself, but when I feel you know, ravishly hungry and I'm just like so hungry, I'm going to pass out. And I don't know. It's like you store enough calories in your body for like 30 days. So mm. you know, like, what is that? And how can I settle that down or sit with it? Or you know, how can I not gobble down a bunch of, I don't know, sandwiches and instead like have a cup of tea and eat a healthy lunch. So, um, yeah, intermittent fasting. I think it's also helpful for people in terms of breaking a cycle of trying to lose weight, which a lot of people are of eating a low carb dinner, getting to bed early. So you skip the carb craving, skipping dessert all of the time. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, and then waking up in the morning and not having carbohydrate, you, know, you end up in this kind of, you know, potentially like 16 hours or so without a big insulin signal, without a lot of blood. And again, that can be uncomfortable for folks. I think depending if you know if you have medical conditions or you have a fragile mental state, a medical state in some way, you want to, you know, be mindful of all that, maybe work with someone, a dietitian, nutritionist, uh, uh, but but all that said, I find I find that to be an eating pattern a lot of people can adopt. Also, when people are struggling with like I won't call it discipline, but just like food's delicious, there's a lot of it. It's hard not to eat it. The, the eating window where people you know between noon and six you can eat whatever the heck you want as much as you want. 
but from six o'clock until noon, 6 p.m. until noon, you're not going to eat um, or do that a few days a week. You know, again, do people need to be cautious about how irritable and hungry that makes them? But uh, I think a lot of these can help. I think sometimes I get people, people get overwhelmed. There's too many options. That's where I like to really focus on nutritional psychiatry because I think like, you know, you can focus on intermittent fasting, but all of this should be put under the umbrella, put in the tent, I would say, of brain health and nutritional psychiatry because, you know, I'm biased, but I just think your brain's the best part of you and that's what you should focus on nourishing and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah. I was going to ask you about, because there's so much information out there, it can, I guess, make a lot of people anxious in, in knowing hey, which one is actually the right one for me and what works for my body? How do I know that? So I guess in terms of a psychiatry aspect in, in helping someone who is really, really anxious in choosing the right kinds of foods or the right diet that is for them, how would you go about helping them first? Mm-hmm. Well, in our clinic, the Brain Food Clinic, we have an, uh, our clinicians we do mental health intakes, but we add a, a food intake of just, you know, been broad brushstrokes, trying to understand how people relate to food, how they nourish themselves, what food categories are really strong in. So we can help reinforce that and where they need a little bit of help. Um, so when someone comes to us and they're feeling really anxious and, you know, I'm looking for things that aren't going to overwhelm them. Things like uh, if you're anxious, one of the problems is you just don't have a lot of an appetite or you're nauseous sometimes. So, how can we think about things like a smoothie that's really nutrient dense and have lots of nuts and seeds in it, or maybe some greens in there, or, uh, you know, how can we think about adding in some fermented foods? Um, how can we get you know, more protein in there? Cause a lot of, you know, protein and fats are more satiating than carbs. Um, are there kind of stimulants, right? Are people drinking three or four cups of coffee or, I uh, did a hit, I gave a lecture at a prominent hospital once and sometimes I'll interview like a person just to like kind of show how I think about food by talking with uh, uh, somebody. I interviewed a physician who is uh, her basic diet was three lattes a day, three skim lattes a day. And, you know, and she was really anxious, harried, hungry, Right, where you just, you know, uh, getting some snacks in her pockets. She was a physician and she kind of rounds the hospital, you know, really emphasizing to her kind of division, hey, something's not working. Your your clinicians aren't eating. It's not healthy. <laughs> they work too hard. You know, something in your messaging is wrong because your people who are promoting health are like not taking care of themselves. So, um, so trying to spot those kind of sources of caffeine. So, you know, we recommend a lot of dark chocolate, but sometimes dark chocolate and other stimulants and people can be very sensitive to these. Um, thinking if there are times of day, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, certainly some people have food sensitivities. Uh, you know, it's not super common, but you know, that can lead to anxiety. So, um, but I try and look at, especially initially, like what are the next few things that you could add in that you like that would help that you know about are there a couple of little things we could recommend that, that seem obvious and helpful potentially? Um, and then can we keep with it, you know, of making sure we're being responsible, you know, somebody severely depressed, having anxiety attacks, they've tried a lot of things, they want to start medicine. Well, you know, I certainly see that, a, not a lot, but where people want to try medication, but they want in the context of a more kind of integrative treatment and with the notion that the other things are going to get cleaned up. Um, 
So the medicine isn't the only option we have. So um, those are some of my thoughts on initial initial uh, anxiety presentations and treatments. Is there any food that, let me ask you this question instead, and I might ask you this question a little bit towards the end because I, I know our time is, is coming to a, to a close, but 50 shades of kale, can you, can you explain that for us? <laughs> Barely. I mean, I can try. I can just tell the story of it. Maybe people, maybe if anybody listening wants to explain it to me, it was a strange time in my life. I got a little manic with the kale. I mean, I love kale. Uh, when I lived in uh, Kenya for a few months, when I was a medical student, we ate a dish called sukumawiki, and I was a vegetarian back then, so I was eating a lot of good sautéed greens, and, and uh, um, so I was eating a lot of that. But but back when this all, you know, Fifty Shades of uh, uh, well, Fifty Shades of Grey came out, right? This movie about kind of rough sex and sexual fantasy, and thinking, you know, at that time I was like a young doctor. The happiness diet had come out, and I was kind of feeling like, you know, man, I, if, if this many people got obsessed for eating for their mental health and brain health, the world would be such a great place. But instead, they're getting obsessed with this sexy book. I was probably a little jealous, Jay. And then I was down at my farmer's market. I was living in uh, uh, the West Village of Manhattan. And there's this great farmer's market in Abington Square. And, and there's this farmer that had like these five or six different varietals of kale so I just got this like thing, 50 shades of kale, like stuck in kale salads were starting to pop all over the city. It's like 2011. And I just couldn't get out of my head, Jay, 50 shades of kale. And, and I thought, well, there are five or six are called cultivars of kale or different varieties. How many are there? I started going on the internet and I found there were like 20 and 30. And I thought, are there 50? And then I grew 50 different kale types on my farm in Indiana. And, and then I don't know, then kale just really... Kale taught me about nutrient density, which I really appreciated. Kale became like a muse to me. I just began to think like how many different ways, like anything you put, like you make kale and eggs, it's healthier. Like you put kale in your cocktail, it's healthier. I, I started writing, I wrote like an erotic, the original 50 Shades of Kale was an ebook. I wrote this like kale erotica, like a love kind of love sex. I don't know. It's like, they didn't put that in the hardcover. Thank God. Um, then we launched National Kale Day. I partnered actually with the department. We partnered with the Department of Defense in America at one point. We fed kale to all of the U.S. servicemen and women uh, in uh, at U.S. commissaries. We partnered with the County of Los Angeles. Every public school in Los Angeles one year for National Kale Day served kale. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what happened. It was, I got teased at the American Psychiatric Association. They called me Dr. Kale. It was very embarrassed. laughed at me. It was very embarrassing. But, you know, in the midst of all that, we had a lot of fun. We threw a lot of kale parties. And, it, you know, and I'm very grateful for that. I was grateful both for the creative inspiration. I was grateful for learning about the importance of diversity. Do you know, if you don't like kale, I'm still going to feed your brain. If you don't like ever want to eat kale, it's okay with me. I'm going to try you on sunflower sprouts or mesclun or basil or arugula or, you know, rosemary. I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep working until uh, bok choy, right? There's a lot of different leafy greens. You can hate kale and we can still feed your brain. And so I'm really grateful for kale for, you know, all the great kale salads I had uh, and, and the great kale chips that, by the way, if you don't make kale chips at home, I, I'd recommend to get the green curly kale, the little frills. 
little olive oil, sprinkle some salt in there, kind of massage just a little bit, spread them out on your cooking tray, like 325 degrees, 300 to 325 for like seven minutes. Give it a little tug because it's in a little puddle of oil, maybe not too much oil, hopefully, but a little bit, or maybe flip them, let them roast a couple more minutes in the oven, pull them out. They're very crispy. Kids love them. You can put actually any sort of seasoning on there. But that that was my kale love affair 10 years ago. This is the 10th year for National Kale Day. It's the first Wednesday in October for anybody who wants to celebrate. It's very easy to celebrate. All you have to do is eat kale. You get bonus points if you share or feed other people kale. That's a big, and that helps you get into kale heaven. So, and since we're talking about kale, you know, I don't have it right here, but also there's misinformation on the internet, Nate, Jason, since you bring up kale, I just want to point out, for some reason, I'm seeing all this garbage that kale is like has is is has oxalates, mm-hmm. and oxalates are natural compounds in plants where they hang on to minerals, and, and and oxalates get turned into kidney stones. Kale is a low oxalate food. It's actually when dietitians prescribe low oxalate diets, they prescribe kale. So I just want to, and, and also there's some crap on the internet that kale is full of thallium. That is also not true. Kale, if you grow kale in polluted soil, kale is so good at pulling nutrients, it also pulls toxins. So if you're growing your kale in toxins, it will accumulate in all of the vegetables, including kale. That's why I recommend to get your kale from organic farms or small farms, ideally, or farms locally that grow their stuff in good, healthy soil. Mm. Thank you so much for, for sharing all that and explaining it. Because yes, I have seen all the negative information Kale backlash, oh, so painful. Yeah. Literally, shoes <laughs> broke. I got an interview. Like, are you Dr. Ramsey? It's like, yeah. Like, are you involved in National Kale Day? It's like, yeah, yeah, of course. I like why. They're like, are you aware of the thallium in kale? And this was literally the day before we were about to serve like thousands of kids, or they were about to serve thousands of kids kale in Los Angeles. And I'm thinking, like, all these Los Angeles moms are going to be like going just like so angry. We fed their kids poisonous food, right? It's horrible. And it was, it was both bad science, but also just one of these examples of, I don't know, I guess I kind of consider it the forces of evil that seek to confuse people, often sell them things and make them scared. And if there's one thing I want people to know about this book, it is really written with an idea of helping you have joyfulness around your relationship with food not to have guilt or fear or cheat days, but to have a set of foods that are delicious, that you love, that Mother Nature grows for you, and that have always historically throughout our history as a human species fed our brains. And now we're eating a diet that really deteriorates our brain and negatively impacts our mental health. And you know, I hope everyone hears, and I think Jay's done a great job illustrating this, I believe in a lot of things helping our mental health, exercise, psychotherapy, medications, uh, different supplements sometimes, but food is something every brain needs to get right. And so I hope our conversation today helps you get a little bit right. I hope maybe some of these foods, we don't talk too much about them, but things like small fish and anchovies, I've got a set of power player foods, uh, cashews and pumpkin seeds and leafy greens like we talked about. And I just hope it inspires you to eat more of those this week and and just do something every day to take care of your mental health. And sometimes it takes a lot more than that. But uh, over time, all those little actions, whether it's exercising or calling a friend or taking care of someone or just sitting with your pet and petting them, 
those are all things that help you with your mental health. And I hope, I hope you'll all engage with this little, those things more this week. The, yeah, it's more of a holistic approach to life. And I have what they call the freedom diet. It consists of all these things that you are talking about, but it's free for me. So if it's free for you, then fantastic. Go and go and do it. But the likelihood of people, you know, with this information, craziness going on, eating kale, for goodness sake, I mean, it's a health food. It, it is a super food. I know it is. And kids or parents are probably feeding their kids 10 times worse foods than kale. So <laughs> like, come on. Like there's not outrage about like breakfast cereal, but there's outrage. No. I appreciate, I have kids that don't love kale that much, but well, I make an amazing kale mac and cheese that has a ton of kale in it and I don't hide it. It's green. They gobble it up. They devour kale chips, you know, but it's not like that's all I feed them. Right. It's like in there occasionally to help them develop their palate. Your love for kale kind of sounds like my love for spinach and, and broccoli um, or broccoli, however you want to say it. <laughs> uh, I've got an equal. I probably eat more broccoli than I do kale now, but don't tell yeah. the kale mafia. They'll come. <laughs> it's our, it's our secret. We won't, we won't say anything. Let me free, but they told me just remember. <laughs> I'm talking about about today. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you and everybody. Likewise, my friend. I know I've gone over over time, but I have to bring you back on at a later date. Can I ask you one final question? Is that all right? Or for sure. This is my all-time favorite question. I have to finish it off uh, with our conversation. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Then ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument, but they've been able to get it and show it to you on your hundredth birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Oh, you know, I am boy. That's a great question, Jay. I mean, I guess um, the things that I would want people on my hundredth birthday uh, to see in my life or the highlights I'd want them to remember, I think revolve around a couple of things pop into my head. One is moments where I, I've um, helped advance a conversation about male mental health and, and helped live by some ideals of modern masculinity, of trying to emphasize the importance of developing our emotional inten- uh, intelligence and really doing everything we can to uh, construct a world that's safe for our wives and sisters and daughters, because it's not now. So I think anything that I've done that would help in that, um, I'd be really honored to, to show that. I think moments where I've been creative and responsible with my creativity, where my creativity has really flowed out of me in a way that, um, you know, the times has been a little crazy for me, like with uh, kale, like if you look at 50 Shades of Kale, I food styled with Jenny Solo, the chef I co-authored with all, most of those dishes myself and bound up all that kale. And it was just like wonderful, kind of expansive, uh, creative moment. I think there are other times where I've harnessed my creativity. I would say with this book and, and kind of harnessed a group of creatives to, to bring a better message. So I'd like the best of those moments to come out. And then I think, um, you know, moments where, uh, uh, I'm, I'm the best, uh, uh, of myself as a dad. I think those are, are ones of, uh, you know, now as I'm in my forties and I kind of think about, um, uh, as you said, success, 
And, you know, it's just that, that that feels like something that maybe doesn't get talked enough about. You know, it's framed as a midlife crisis, right? When you're uh, a man or a woman and you're balancing career and you're balancing your relationship and you're balancing. And, and I really, I've come to loathe that idea because it's a midlife challenge and it's a wonderful challenge, right? It's a blessing to have these challenges of how, how do you, uh, instill values in a young human being? How do you continue to hone your craft? How do you deepen a relationship? Those are, one, those are the best challenges out there in human existence. So, um, yeah, I, I guess to get back to this birthday party, I would, I would want to, yeah, I wish I were being a little bit more like uh, deep. Like maybe I'd want to show my biggest failures and say, folks, I'm checking out at 100. I want you to see all the ways I failed in life. And so you can learn from that. Uh, and this patient said to me the other day, he's like, oh, you know, basically like, I want, I don't want there to be pain in my life. I don't want it to be hard. And it was weird because this is a kid who like works hard, works harder than anybody I know. Right? And I said, to him, it was, oh, I'm usually better than this. It just popped out. I said, you don't want to grow? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, I don't know. Growing always hurts, doesn't it? Like if you're really like, really growing, like not, um, great. I'm hitting the bullseye, but really like, wow, I can't imagine hitting that bullseye and then working hard until you hit it. And so, I don't know, I guess, yeah, if I were a bigger, better person, maybe I would, I would want people to see that. Maybe I'd want to show people when I was at my worst of my mental health, mm-hmm. this, this birthday party is getting a little down. We're going to come out after there's going to be like the wake part <laughs> where we have a great time, but drink a lot of kombucha and eat a lot of dark chocolate. But like, yeah, in terms of if I were going to, if it was going to be a great film and we had all of the moments of my life, I'd definitely show some triumphs for sure so my kids could see it. I broke the pole vaulting record in my college for sure. That would be, and that would be like the beginning, like the the highlight reel. But then I think like maybe halfway through it would go dark and it would like show a lot of tears. It would show like the worst, like hardest moments somehow. Um, you know, not, not like for pity and martyrdom, but more of like coming out of that and, and maybe what I learned or maybe, uh, you know, yeah, just letting people know that's been a part of it too. And then it would end on a high note. It'd end on good stuff, like the dad stuff, the like walks in the mountains. It would have trips. I think that would certainly, when I think about like when I play the movie of my life, I was really blessed early in life to, um, get to do a lot of traveling and got exposed to a lot of different cultures. And I come from very rural white America that really kind of in some ways struggles with appreciating other values. And, and, and so certainly I'd want some of those highlights played on my hundred year birthday, Jay, if I, you know, I just, uh, I'd love to see it again. I remember standing on this roof with one of my buddies, Ian, as uh, the sun was setting, Kasumu, the sun was setting over Lake Victoria, or, uh, you know, just some, some really wonderful times that you know, I can replay in my head, but it'd be fun for everybody just to be there with me on my hundredth birthday. And that would be it. Then I think I'd wander off, man. I'd high five everybody. I'd give a lot of hugs and kisses. Okay. I'd take like the last kombucha and I'd just like walk off into the stars. That'd be a good, <laughs> like be like exactly 100. Like, I like that, Jay. Thanks. I, I feel better about it. I was talking to my analyst about it, about my, sort of struggling with existential questions of mortality and our meaning. I like, I like this imagining the hundredth birthday like this, like life well lived here, are the highlights, fist bumps and hugs. Peace out. I like that. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. That's, that's kind of the point of the question. I think it's, yeah, if you, whatever you want it to show, 
They kind of and my horse, my horse Cinco. Sorry, I'd show my horse Cinco and I going over a couple epic jumps. I'm not sure he'll be my horse for long, but he is right now. And mm-hmm. he's been a big part of me uh, getting my mental health back over the last couple of years. So I, I definitely want to show him. Sorry. Last no, time. no, of course. You can have whatever you want. Or whoever. I know you said that. I like it. You didn't have to narrow it. Usually people narrow it down like one thing. It's like, ugh. What, whatever you want, man. <laughs> I, I don't like uh, restricting people. Like, no way. That's That's dumb. But I think it's a a perfect send off message for people to think about, to reflect on in their own life, what it is for them. Uh, But Dr. Ramsey, man, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure uh, communicating with you today. I can't wait to have you back on to continue this conversation because we we didn't touch we're going to touch the surface, really. (laughs) We didn't, we we, we talked a little about the book. Uh, Everybody I'm on Instagram is Drew Ramsey MD. That's probably, and, and I do have a, a fun newsletter it comes out every Friday called Friday Feels, just sort of cool links to stuff that we're checking out about mental health. And then we've got a, a big course coming out called Healing the Modern Brain um, that's dropping any day now. So um, take a peek on it. It's DrewRamseyMD.com. And, and Jay, thanks so much. It's great for a fun conversation. Thanks for telling everybody about uh, E2B depression and anxiety. And uh, I will uh, look forward to talking to you sometime in the future. You're Enjoy welcome. Enjoy some seafood tonight, all right? Oh, I will. Hundred <laughs> percent, I will. Thank you so much, Doctor Ramsey. You're a legend. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. 